1: Hello. Today on the LoopCast, I have Professor Kurt Braddock, uh, author of Weaponized Words. And today we are examining the idea of stochastic terrorism. So uh, this is part of our series that I started, that we're starting, called Ask a Professor. (laughs) Um, So there is, uh, because of Twitter, because of uh, just the nature of the online, there is a lot of concepts and ideas that are just constantly being thrown at you and one of the the current ones or the is the idea of stochastic terrorism and here on the show we're you know not entirely satisfied with popular or superficial understandings Uh, we want to dig into this because it's a phrase and an idea that keeps coming up and it keeps coming up in a popular sort of context and we want to dig into it so i couldn't think of anyone better to help me examine this concept, then my guest today, he is, as I mentioned, the author of Weaponized Words. Uh, this is probably one of my, I would say one of my favorite books. Um, oh, look- you're,
0: you're flattering me so.
1: <laughs> uh, looking at Persuasion, it's, it's occupies the space of being both academic and accessible. So it's not, uh, doesn't, you know, spend a lot of time in jargon and spends a lot of time in analysis and kind of conceptualizing. Um, so we'll have a link, uh, make sure if you liked, uh, our conversation today and then our previous conversation with Kirk, go purchase the book. It's, it's great. Um, now with all that being said, uh, please welcome my guest, Kirk Braddock. How's it going?
0: Going pretty well. Thanks very much. I'm excited to talk about this given that, um, it's funny this is happening today just because you mentioned weaponized words, but literally today, the, um, the proposal for my second book, which is about stochastic terrorism from the far right, uh, went out for review. So this is literally like the perfect timing for
1: this. Awesome. <laughs> so with that being said, I want to maybe start with kind of what do we mean by stochastic terrorism i I think I, I think for me personally, I kind of struggle with this because. Uh, again, a lot of it, a lot of my ideas and definitions of it is coming from a popular context. And sure. within, within that popular context, it's just like, you know, it's either ill-defined or defined in such a way that it's it's making an op-ed, like the thesis. It's being, you know, kind of shaped to fit a thesis as opposed to being a framework uh, type of idea. So um, start, off, start us off with what is stochastic terrorism? What is meant by that term?
0: Sure. So, A couple of people have defined it a little bit differently, but there are several common elements that help us pull a definition together, which is what we often do in terrorism studies is is, uh, quarrel over definitions. But this one, given that it's it's relatively new, there are some common threads. Um, To understand stochastic terrorism, it's important first to understand what's meant by a stochastic process more generally. So a stochastic process which is which comes out of statistics and statistical theory and math theory it's a process that um although it is rare and it is very difficult to predict when and where such a process will occur. It will reliably occur. So it's a very random type of event, but it will reliably occur. And the best way to think of this is if you've ever been sitting on your front porch and you look out on the horizon and you see dark clouds rolling in toward your town, you know lightning is going to strike somewhere, but it's almost impossible to predict when and where. Um, Another good example is in uh, in grade school, I remember, we had to, uh, in biology, our professor, our teachers would give us Petri dishes and we would sneeze into the Petri dishes and then close them up. And then three days later, of course, um, bacteria would grow, but we couldn't predict when and where that would grow. So stochastic terrorism is a similar kind of idea that's based on the premise that when an individual, typically a politician, but it doesn't have to be, it can be anybody with a very large platform, when they make statements that seem to advocate the use of violence without actually saying that people should engage in violence. So the use of dog whistles, the use of coded language, using certain words that imply that violence is a way to solve a political problem. When they have a large platform and they use this kind of language, uh, just by nature of having such a large audience, it's impossible to predict when and where someone will interpret that call as an actual call to violence, but it will reliably occur. So think of it this way. If every person who encounters a message like that has a 0.001% chance of interpreting it as a call to violence, when you multiply that by several tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions, we start getting to a probability of one, that at least one person Will we'll, um, we'll, will will interpret it in that way. So that's stochastic terrorism. It's it's the use of coded language to uh, to motivate random actors to engage in violence in support of the message that was uttered. The the main element of stochastic terrorism is plausible deniability. The speaker has the ability to say, well, I never overtly told them to engage in violence, so I can't be held responsible for the outcomes. And now that gets into issues surrounding freedom of speech and, and where the lines are drawn but I'm sure we'll get into that a bit later. So just very, very basically, stochastic terrorism is when a speaker with a large audience may uses coded language to suggest that the use of violence is viable, and then somebody interprets it as a call to actual action.
1: So in that definition, you're not really touching on tech or technology at all. Like this, and I think this, this idea of stochastic, stochastic terrorism comes up a lot in reference to Facebook or Tucker, Tucker Carlson. So it's always, mm-hmm. it's always couched in this idea of social media or cable television. Um, within your research, like how is it, would it be accurate to say that this type of terrorism is very much a modern kind of expression of our information systems or is, is it kind of goes deeper than that. We can sort of look at the 60s and 70s, maybe even the 19th century, like 100 years ago, 150 years ago, and find examples of stochastic yeah. terrorism.
0: Yeah, I think you can find examples going way back. Um, like all processes, all social processes, stochastic terrorism, um, any kind of social influence, they all have their basis in face-to-face interaction. and Typically, the psychological processes that, that underpin these these larger processes these these this violence or any other kind of behavioral outcome are they're basically the same but what you say is absolutely true. Um, The online space, uh, mass mediated channels, um, social media, they're all amplifiers of these messages. So basically, whereas in the past, before we had social media, an individual making these statements might've had access to a, a hundred people, a thousand people. And there was a much smaller chance that one individual would interpret it as an actual call to action. Now, when you amplify something across 88 million followers on Twitter, you have a much larger chance that one person who encounters that, uh, that message will interpret it as a call to violence. So if you think of of tech, whether it be online or mass mediated channels like television, or things of that nature, the fact that they amplify the number of people who uh, encounter these messages, it also amplifies the likelihood that at least one person will interpret it as a call to violence.
1: And at the same time, like with the online, that audience is constantly kind of being shaped and, and sort of given direction via, you know, recommendation algorithms, via filter bubbles or whatever. So in that case, it, it almost seems like social media, you know, pushes, increases that chance of hitting one
0: Yes, know, in a much quicker uh, would- way i w- I would agree and and for this more than anything the second reason that you say the of course search algorithms are part of the problem, although some of the uh the larger channels like YouTube have gotten better at at breaking um the patterns that people fall into and and those rabbit holes they go down, but people self select into the types of information they encounter and oftentimes the kinds of language that that can be Uh, that can motivate stochastic forms of terrorism, they are the exact kinds of language that these people are looking for to reinforce the the beliefs they have already. So you're absolutely right in that um, when people search for this kind of content, when they encounter it, when it reinforces what they already believe, which people tend to do anyway, it does move that likelihood closer to one that somebody will interpret it that way.
1: Um, I know I'm going to get messages about this, so I'm going to ask. I think one of the big critiques... (laughs) that has come from historians um, it's like Kathleen Belew, the brilliant Kathleen Ballou is oh, yeah. this, this idea of the lone wolf is not real, right? Mm-hmm. The, the idea of an individual acting on his or her own is, that's not real. There's actually like a, a dense network that supports them. So I'm curious within this framework that we're laying out for stochastic terrorism,
0: mm-hmm
1: explain to us, like, do you take issue with the idea of a lone wolf? Is it inaccurate? Like, how do we sort of attend to that potential criticism?
0: Yeah, I, I don't think that what Kathleen and others say necessarily invalidates the idea of stochastic terrorism, because way back when, when I did my PhD uh, in my dissertation, I remember making the argument that lone wolf terrorism was a myth. This was in like 2012. And I, I mean, I made the argument just I mean, not based really on research, but just based on the idea that people don't develop ideas on their own. They have to be exposed to them. So um, there's a term used uh, by a buddy of mine, Paul Gill. I I think he might have been on the Loopcast once. I'm not sure. But they do a lot of work on uh, lone actor terrorism out of um, University College London. And they use the term lone actor. Instead of lone wolf, which I think is much more accurate because the term lone actor implies that although one person can carry out a terrorist attack, they don't become radicalized to violence on their own. They have to be exposed to certain messages and they have to have certain interactions to develop the mindset that it takes to engage in this kind of violence. So I think it's important here to distinguish what we mean by kind of uh, radicalization of beliefs and attitudes and radicalization of behavior. So I absolutely don't think that uh, the criticism of the lone wolf typology uh, invalidates stochastic terrorism or vice versa. I think that people who do engage in violence on the, the backs of some of these this subtext. Um, they often are lone actors, but it's because of their engagement with these messages that they move toward violence in the first place.
1: So that's a, a great segue into this idea of what is, what does it mean to be a stochastic terrorist? If, sure. say, if, if, you know, we, if stochastic terrorism can exist, then there must be an individual to commit that act. So, uh, Lay out for us, what does it mean to be a stochastic terrorist?
0: Yeah, so this is where terminology gets a bit icky, but um, it's important to distinguish kind of the attacking terrorist and the stochastic terrorist in this framework. And this is for lack of a better term at this point, just because this concept is so new. um, The stochastic terrorist in this framework is the individual who incited the violence, not the one who performed the violence. Typically, if somebody engages in violence on behalf of a political religious ideological reason um, against civilians, it's pretty easy to identify that person as a terrorist A stochastic terrorist in the way the framework was originally developed, the person who's the stochastic terrorist is the inciter, the one who uses the coded language to motivate the violence, they essentially engage in terrorism by remote control. Through this other person who engages in the actual violence while maintaining plausible deniability. So there's a really good phrase I guess use it but there's a phrase that's been used to talk about stochastic terrorism as terrorism by remote control, you're able to control somebody else to engage in violence on your behalf, um, while doing it from a so to speak, unwired connection. You can't necessarily be connected to the, the violence because you never overtly directed it, but the person was nonetheless motivated by um, what it is that the stochastic terrorist said. So this is just the term that's used now. I'm not sure I'm completely satisfied with it because uh, terrorism is a a strategy, a behavior that's engaged in, and I'm not sure how the terrorism studies community would feel about calling somebody who doesn't engage in violence, but motivates it as a terrorist. But nevertheless, the, the, with the framework that we have thus far and with the, um, the newness of this concept, the stochastic terrorist, as we refer to it, is
1: the person who incites the violence. This is kind of interesting to me because I, I feel like conceptually you're right. Right, so like Anwar Alalaki, um, mm-hmm. you know David Duke, um, you know whoever, right? Sure. You know these these gentlemen who are kind of building the ideological frameworks and kind of pushing for violence. That mm-hmm. makes sense to me, um, and, and legally that doesn't seem as problematic. But then you get into Tucker Carlson and Four yeah. Chan, like. What, what happens when we move from the framework of a terrorist who straps a bomb to his chest or mm-hmm. commits a lynching to the concept of a terrorist that is using his or her words, their words, to influence? Like that, that legally seems, legally or enforcement mechanism, however you want to tackle this question, seems yeah. kind of... I, I don't know the adjective, Dicey, difficult.
0: Yeah, Dicey is the exact right adjective. And that's why I'm not the biggest fan of calling the inciter the stochastic terrorist. I like the term stochastic terrorism for the overall process because the end result is a terrorist act. But in terms of the actual inciter, I'm not sure what the right term is. I think as I work on this more, I'm going to work on that kind of terminology. Um, But you're bringing up a good point here. And there is a distinction here between using words and using actual actions. And in places like uh, the US, where we have freedom freedom of speech protections, that line is, it is definitely not black and white. It is super, super gray. Now there are laws on the books about incitement and what qualifies as incitement. And in the u s uh, based on the Brandenburg decision, I think in the 1960s um, incitement to violence means that somebody has to motivate somebody to engage in violence pretty much immediately after they use the the language that incites the violence. only then can somebody be guilty of incitement so there is there there is some definitional work that needs to be teased out here as to. Where freedom of speech ends and where stochastic terrorism begins, do they overlap? Could somebody engage in stochastic terrorism in a legal sense, and, and that they use the freedom of speech freedom of speech to use these terms? So these are all questions that that need to be grappled with, and um, I'm not ashamed to say that. I don't have all the answers to these. The um, the book that I'm writing now, I'm actually doing interviews with like media ethicists and philosophers and constitutional scholars and, and lawyers to see what they think about these sorts of things. But um, these kind of conversations need to be had because these attacks are happening. There have been dozens of attacks now where somebody cites something that another individual said that didn't overtly direct violence. So I'm sure we'll get to the legal implications of that. But um, the argument I make with respect to stochastic terrorism is that even if it's not legally prosecutable, there should be some repercussion for it in the form of uh, political cost or social ostracization or something along those lines. Now, what those repercussions should be, that's another debate to be had as we dig into this process more and more.
1: That fascinates me because within the law, my understanding of it, I'm sure I'm going to get emails, but is that the insider and the person who commits the violence, there needs to be much more direct connection, right? Mm -hmm. So, so uh, somebody gives a speech and then somebody goes, commits a murder or uh, somebody in a group gives a speech and a different person in that group commits a murder. And then I begin to think of like, like Tucker Carlson and how there's this huge gulf, this huge kind of complex separation between let's say what he says about the great replacement theory on mm-hmm. his show and then you know, the Buffalo shooting or any right. sort of mass violence that comes from it. So when we think about this, how do we think about complexity of the relationship of the insider to his or her audience? And sort of yeah. not only complexity from a perspective of relationships, but sort of informational complexity.
0: Yeah. And that's the tricky part of of connecting A to B here is that oftentimes there isn't a direct line between communicator and actor. Um, That said, I don't think the gap between what's being said and what's being done is is actually that wide. Um, If you look at, for example, you mentioned the Buffalo shooter from a couple of weeks ago. If you look at the reasons this individual carried out, or at least the stated reasons they carried out the attack. It's almost verbatim what was said on Tucker Carlson show for weeks, months, and years leading up to it. So whether or not Tucker Carlson is somebody who's directly responsible for the Buffalo attack. And I would argue, despite what he does, I would not say he's directly responsible for it. Um, I'm responsible for motivating the attacker. I mean, he amplified an idea that motivated this attacker so in a sense he amplified messages that we could call radicalizing in a sense radicalizing to violence he amplified those messages in a way that motivated that may motivate other individuals to engage in these sorts of attacks so you're absolutely right in that these these kinds of issues are really inherently complex and unless somebody is specifically mentioned as a motivator For an attack, I doubt that there are any legal repercussions that can be taken. Now, that said, there are dozens of cases now, many from the January 6th attack, as well as others, where um, there are clearly connections between a specific speaker and the the attack itself. Um, Many individuals who've been arrested and uh, are, are charged in connection to January 6th have specifically mentioned Donald Trump as a reason and his rhetoric as a reason they engaged in violence on that day. Um, Another example, there was somebody who was uh, found, this is a couple of years ago now, found with a hit list of, of prominent Democrats and prominent media figures, many of whom were referred to using names that were specifically used by former President Trump. So you can draw those connections there, but in, in the case of Tucker Carlson, because the attacker didn't cite them specifically, there's no legal connection there. That doesn't mean there's not an ideological connection, though. And the amplification of these ideas, I think, are what, uh, are, is what's particularly tricky with respect to dealing with stochastic terrorism.
1: That's interesting, and I, I kind of want you to dig on this idea of mainstreaming. Because, mm-hmm. as you kind of pointed out, the the great replacement theory has been kind of circulating on the chans. It's been circulating in, in far right corners for a while, but yeah. Tucker kind of amplified it and he kind of mainstreamed it and made it polite, I guess. I I, I yeah. don't really. Um, but I mean, speak on and sort of dig into us, uh, dig into this idea of mainstreaming. Is it? Is it a concept worth kind of examining and studying here?
0: I think it's the concept worth studying and examining because for my money, and there are other researchers who I very much respect who look into the far right, they argue that the amplification. Oh, there's Sully. My dog says hello. Um, the amplification of these ideas and the mainstreaming of these ideas are the greatest threat to domestic security because they do inherently advocate for violence against the other, um, even if they're done in a polite way. So Tucker Carlson is just one example. My bigger concern are the elected officials that use this kind of language. So when Paul Gosar posts a video of him decapitating uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez with the attention of attacking Joe Biden when Donald Trump stands at a podium and talks about how he appreciates somebody body slamming a reporter and attacking a reporter. When they, use these kinds of, when they use this kind of language, um, it takes it from the dark corners of the internet and it makes it politically acceptable to use this kind of language. And this language and, and these, these kinds of messages, they are inherently designed to cause people to be aggressive against their perceived enemies. That's the danger, is that when they, when they are amplified and mainstreamed, that's when they reach larger audiences that are more likely to engage in violence on their behalf.
1: In your study how would you sort of separate out somebody like a media figure versus a political figure? Like in this, this is going to be very academic. um, But is there a, do you, does that change the value? Right. So you're, you're looking at the spreadsheet, you're thinking about influence. Like do you put somebody like Tucker Carlson who has the millions of people listening to him ahead of somebody like Paul Gosar, who you know, I don't. I don't think anybody outside our field and outside of politics knows who who he is, other than he's you know publicly perceived as a goofball. So yeah. how do we how do we sort of compare and contrast a media figure versus a political figure when it comes to stochastic terrorism?
0: I think it's important to look at size of audience there, and somebody like Tucker Carlson, who I think has still has the number one news show, quote news show. Um, on on prime time is clearly going to have a bigger audience than somebody like Paul Gosar. Um, although Gosar did have his his couple of days in the sun last summer when. Um, I think even his own family came out and tried to like disavow him and all these other things because of the things he was saying. Um, But I I think you're right in that certain media figures are going to have bigger audiences than politicians. And just because of the nature of their audience, they're going to increase risk of people engaging in violence using this kind of language. Now, that said, there are some politicians who do have very, very large audiences, a large audience as well. Somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene she'll say something, and it gets amplified by the mass media. Um, just the other day, I think she used the term uh, Christian nationalist as, as, as a way to describe, like, what's wrong with Christian nationalism, which is a bit of a code word for um, an ideology that was embraced by the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist groups, and that was amplified. So she has a huge audience, and she's a politician. Um so it, it really the only way to distinguish these people in terms of their influence really are their audiences and their their mechanisms for getting in touch with people. That said it's easier it's it's pretty easy to distinguish a media figure from a politician in terms of what they do whether they are primarily a media figure or a politician. Um but those sorts of lines are being blurred as well as we found that somebody like a uh, a Steve Bannon who Used to be a major media figure. Uh, I forget it was it was it Breitbart that he was the head of or something along those lines. It was that it was some kind yeah. of website, but, but Breitbart. He, yeah, it was Breitbart. And now he is firmly embedded in right wing politics. So there are gray areas there, but it's still easy to distinguish who's part of what uh, what group. But you're absolutely right in that just because somebody's a politician doesn't necessarily mean they have a larger audience or more influence
1: than a media figure,
0: or vice versa.
1: So, I want to switch footing and kind of begin to attend to this idea of agency. So, mm-hmm. so, let's start big, huge picture and say, how do we begin to frame agency? So, I guess you could tackle this from an academic perspective or any other perspective you want. But agency action sort of, yeah, agency is a good, I think, a good framing for this because It's it. It seems like you've you've already touched on it, but there's so many lines, and they're always being blurred. You never know. So, for us, like, walk us through sort of how do we frame agency? How do we study it? And how do we understand it in this case? So, I'd love.
0: I think was this one of the questions they ask a professor questions about agency? I can't remember, but like this, um, this is a great question to ask because the way that I understand stochastic terrorism and the way that I I try to study how those words turn into action, agency is a huge part of it. And I look, I use a specific theory of decision making called reasoned action theory to understand how somebody could interpret um, kind of subjective language and turn it into violent behavior. Now, if you're not familiar with reasoned action theory, it's the long and short of it is that we develop or we engage in behaviors because we develop attitudes about that behavior, whether we think it'll be useful and enjoyable, that we develop perceptions of norms surrounding the behavior. That is, do we see others that we value engaging in the behavior and do we think That people that we value would like if we engage in that behavior, and then the last one, the last thing that discerns if somebody engages in, in a certain behavior, including violence, is this idea of agency does somebody believe they have the capacity and the autonomy to engage in this behavior so I'm using that framework to describe that people who engage in violent action on the back of violent subtext Um, reasoned action theory is a nice framework for that because it shows how people develop the positive attitudes, how they develop those norms and how they develop ideas about agency. So if I can, I'll give an example here from the January 6th attack. Um, Many people implicated what uh, Donald Trump said on the ellipse that day for, for the attack itself. Now, to understand how people develop the idea that they're capable of doing this sort of thing, all you need to consider are the kinds of things that uh, former President Trump said uh, at the end of his speech that day. He said a couple of things in, in that speech uh, that I'll quote here that could have given people the idea that they actually did have the capacity for overturning the election. A couple of quotes he said during that speech. Number one, we're gathered together in the heart of our nation's capital for one very basic and simple reason—to save our democracy. So, using that language, not only does he implicate the um, the election process as being illegitimate, but he also says that they have the capacity to to engage in in saving democracy from um, what he he described as as evildoers and people who who had. Um, had stolen the election from him. A second quote I think is much more, um, it implicates him much more in developing this idea of agency among the attackers. He said, quote, and after this we're going to walk down, and I'll be right there with you, we're going to walk down, we're going to walk down to the Capitol, we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women, you had to show strength and you have to be strong. So, by using these kinds of language by saying, we're going to do this, we're going to walk down there, you're going to come with me, you have to show strength, you have to be strong. This communicates to his audience that they do have the capacity, they do have the autonomy. And beyond that, they do have the approval of their president to go ahead and do this. So agency is a huge part of why stochastic terrorism occurs if we use the reasoned action theory framework, which I think is a good way of doing it because people do make their own decisions. We don't, we're not exposed to messages and then make a decision with considering it. And agency is one of those things people consider before they do engage in violent
1: behavior. I think that's that's kind of what I struggle with, um, explaining agency or sort of convincing people that, yes, uh, an individual has their own agency in the world, but they can come under undue influence or influence. I think I think like one six and sort of the Trump years have been the biggest challenge because it's like, it's like, yeah, I, I, as a researcher have listened to Trump speeches. I have listened to a lot of Christian identity speeches, but I don't engage in apocalyptic violence, but somebody chooses to do so. And I think, how do we as, as researchers kind of communicate this? Because I feel like if I'm wheeling out the the whiteboard with reason action theory with the diagrams, uh, I, I feel like I have lost the communications battle. Like, yeah, like like I'm going to the bar and I got a, a whiteboard markers. you know, I'm <laughs> Doing doing the full like uh, the Charlie from Always Sunny in Philadelphia meme. Um, yeah, yeah. But but it, <laughs> sorry, uh, but how do we like? What is a sort of not simpler, but sort of more direct and kind of better way to communicate this to normies that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, the way to describe it, first of all, is say we're not sponges, first of all. Things that we don't we don't get dumped messages on us and we don't soak them all up. Um, Some ideas resonate, some ideas don't, and that's I mean that's everything. That's not just violent rhetoric. That's absolutely everything. So that's the first thing is that we are not complete just sponges that if somebody says we can do something we're going to do it. That's kind of the the foundation you're working from. But when combined with a situation where somebody that we value or somebody that we look up to, when they seem to normalize a behavior by saying that we have to engage in violence um, or uses language that suggests that the use of violence would be a viable means of achieving a goal, when you combine those things with somebody saying that you can do this, then it is much more likely that they are going to, to engage in that behavior than, than if they didn't. So it's um, like any communication process, we like to think. I mean, despite the fact that there's a theory in communication called the magic bullet theory that says that, I mean, it's from when we first started studying communication that somebody says an idea or they vocalize an idea and then it goes into our brain and we believe that idea. And of course, that's not true. It's much more complex than that. Um, When we consider somebody's agency, it's not just that somebody's saying that you can do this. It's these other things too. It's our perceptions of the norms around us. What are the people that we like, the people that we value, the people that we love What do they think about engaging in violence? What do we think or what do we see that people around us are doing? So on January 6th, if you're a person in the crowd and and you develop the idea that, hey, maybe I could go up to the Capitol and do something, and you're seeing 700 people just like you who are doing the same thing, that can motivate you too. And when you have the idea that engaging in violence is the way to save democracy, then it's much more likely that you're going to use that agency that you've been given and, and turn it into violent action. So it, it's, it's not just that one thing is said and we assimilate it. It's a combination of factors. But when these factors come together, um, I mean, 75 years of research has shown that we make our behavior or make our decisions about behaviors based on these things.
1: It almost seems like an individual is waiting for permission to engage in something like it almost they they look to Trump or they look to Carlson. They look to whomever for that kind of permission to be violent and to engage in violence.
0: Yeah. Or if not permission there that there is somebody who's a figure in power, who's an authority, who has a a platform, and we attribute credibility to these platforms. So somebody credible to their audiences are saying things that they've thought for a long time. So that's why I say the normalization of these things is the biggest danger, because when somebody with a platform who's perceived as credible says these things, it goes from the realm of the conceptual into the realm of the real, and people feel they can actually do these kinds of behaviors.
1: That's interesting, but like I feel like a critique of this would be that it's it's very much elite driven, right? You you still need a Trump, you still need a Carlson figure. How how can we describe this in the other way? So instead of top down, uh bottom up, is there is there a, a process here that is giving permission, giving influence or creating influence from the bottom up? That is. Sort of conceptually, if we remove Trump, if we remove Carlson, and we simply kind of examine the network without those elites, without those mm-hmm. kind of uh, big names Yeah, well, I
0: mean the ideas are still going to resonate
1: in these kinds
0: of these uh, networks, but I think without the person with the large platforms who typically are elites, um, then the kinds of messages are reaching a. F- far a far smaller number of people than they would be if they're resonating in these networks um, that are kind of more hidden in the corners of the internet, not quite so hidden anymore, but, but still not nearly as mainstreamed as they would be if they weren't being amplified by these elites. So I think if you take kind of the Trumps, the Carlson's, the Gosar's, the Boberts, the, the Greens, those types of people out of the equation, these ideas would still resonate, but it would be among a much smaller group of people. And if we go back to the idea of a stochastic process um, and think about the number of people who have a 0.001% chance of engaging in violence, the smaller number of people that are exposed to those kinds of ideas, the lesser chance there is that somebody will actually engage in violence on behalf of them. So the, the elite platform that these individuals have is a huge part of the equation. And they use that platform to spread these messages in a way that that amplify them, that um, that they couldn't see, that they couldn't achieve if they were just in the hidden corners of the internet.
1: So then I, I guess if I'm understanding this correctly, then we have the stochastic terrorist. we have their audience, you know, I guess part of this process is how do they find that audience? How do, what does that process look like? Is it like, it almost seems like with Trump and Carlson, it was very, at least from an outside perspective, it seemed mm-hmm. very nat, seemed very natural right? Trump, you know, his opening line before he ran for president was, you know, the uh, Mexico, they're sending the rapists, drug dealers, etc. It was, he didn't need to cultivate or develop an audience, his words kind of found it. But um, from a framework perspective, how do we understand that audience seeking behavior? You know, do we just kind of, say, like, it's just more natural, it's more ideological, you'll just naturally find an audience? How do we sort of understand that process?
0: Well, I think the example you just gave is a great example. Um, Oftentimes, uh, these people who are looking for an audience or are looking to be a, a leader of people or, or cultivate a group that they can speak to, they often do so by connecting with the audience by saying things or doing things. That already jives with what the audience thinks. So you mentioned the um, kind of the Mexico caravan, the rapists, all those sorts of things. By using that kind of rhetoric at the outset, Trump Trump was establishing himself as somebody who could be a leader to individuals who had these ideas, but prior to when he got involved, couldn't vocalize them. So I do think that um, that some of the things that are said serve to develop and cultivate that audience because the audience is drawn to somebody who's saying things that they already believe.
1: So for the stochastic terrorists, for the, the Trumps here, it's they're not the ones committing the violence, but they are committing the performance. Is that would that be accurate to say in using the word performance and describing it as performative? because? You know, inevitably, you know, the elites aren't the ones kind of, you know, pardon the phrase, pulling the trigger or committing the act of violence. So, you know, is performance performative the correct way of framing this and thinking about it?
0: I think that is a good way to look at it. And I mean, that I think transcends uh stochastic terrorism because oftentimes the the ideological leaders the elites they're not the ones who are at the front lines of these attacks they're not the ones strapping bombs to their chests and they're not the ones despite saying so storming the capital um these elites often talk about how they are with these individuals how they are part of the same group um they use collective language like we our us as if to say, I'm part of your group and we're all going to do these sorts of things. That second quote that I mentioned, sorry, my dog is all over the place right now. Um, The the second quote I said from Trump about how we are going to walk down to the Capitol. And then of course he didn't do it. Um, Yeah, the elites are the ones who who make this performance and they tend to um, motivate others to engage in the activity on their behalf. And oftentimes they don't engage in the behaviors themselves.
1: Then, like, is there an accountability mechanism? Because it almost seems like with Trump, like, the quickest way to de-radicalize somebody is to point out, like, he just pushed all these people into federal charges, potentially. Or uh, with, you know, Tucker, it's like, oh, he lives in a $10 million mansion in rural Maine. Like, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really have to deal with consequences. So, I mean, how how does the stochastic terrorist like kind of get over that hump, that hypocritical, like hypocrisy, like how how does that work?
0: Um, Never underestimate the desire for people to hear what they want to hear and hear what they want to believe. Um, People can rationalize anything um, to reinforce the worldview that they have and to avoid feeling that dissonance that um, that somebody might be saying something that goes against what they already believe or undermines what they believe. Uh, we see it again and again that, yeah, you can tell people all the time that Tucker Carlson's a rich dude from Vermont or New Hampshire, that um, Donald Trump wouldn't spit at you if your eyebrows were on fire, but they buy into it anyway. They think that they're, they have their best interests at heart. Now, one thing I think that could work here, because we've seen it work in the past, is try to undermine the persuasiveness of messages that are delivered by stochastic terrorists by pointing out the strategy. So uh, some research that I've been doing at American with uh, Peril, Cynthia Miller Idris and, and the organization there, is to see whether or not we can inoculate not just against content, but can we inoculate against strategies as well. So if we warn individuals that this kind of rhetoric is going to be coming their way and it's meant to motivate them to do something, people are much more likely to resist engaging in a behavior they think they're being used for than to try to rationalize their way around it. So although I haven't tested it yet, I do think inoculation as a means of um, of preventing violence via stochastic terrorism might be a promising way of going about it, basically using people's desire to make their own decisions, to have their own autonomy um, to prevent their persuasion by these kinds of messages.
1: Interesting. Um, I mean, it seems like the, the, cre- the critique there or not critique, because I I don't know how to frame this. It seems to be like coming from the perspective of cults and sort of undue influence. Like the idea is even if you were to sit here and say, and just like you know fire up the whiteboard and be like you know this is the technique this is how they're doing it look at these examples like how far can inoculation go what is what is the limits of inoculation of inoculation against techniques or even against content
0: well that's an empirical question that we're answering now i mean there's been a lot of research on uh, how long inoculation works, and whether we need inoculation booster shots and those sorts of things. Um, and it seems to be pretty, a pretty viable way of preventing persuasion via certain strategies. Now, um, that's not to say it's going to work for everybody. There are always going to be people who slip through the cracks, and it might only even work for a portion of them. But I do think that it's a useful way to prevent at least some people from succumbing to, to the allure of these, this kind of subtext. Um, The whole idea here, we're never going to get the probability to zero, but if we can take some of the people out of the equation who might be persuaded by this kind of violent subtext, then we get the number away from one, if we can get it away from one at least that's a success.
1: So then I kind of want you to dig into this a bit this idea of counter radicalization and de radicalization. Sure. For, for you, it seems like it seems like we need to be countering rad- radicalization through inoculation. Uh, do you, within your research and thinking, do you kind of visualize? Let me step back. Which part of that do you emphasize more? Is it more important to engage in sort of inoculation and counter de-radicalization? Like, never you want to move the probability away from one and get it closer to zero. Or is it you kind of have to wait until somebody's radicalized and you, then you deal with them? For you, what, what part of that is more important and sort of put, like, put resources and emphasis on?
0: Based on what I've seen, I think counter-radicalization is the the more, the, it, it's the, it's the more efficient way to prevent violence. Not to say that de-radicalization is not useful, because I've done quite a bit of work in that space, too, and I think it's absolutely useful if done properly. But based on what I've seen in my research, I think that it's much easier to stop, buddy, stop somebody from going down a rabbit hole um, than pulling them out of that rabbit hole. So while some, once somebody becomes completely ideologically assimilated, once they take an ideology or a belief and they make it a fundamental part of their identity, it becomes very, very hard to tease those two things apart. So the, the more efficient way is to prevent that from happening. Try to make somebody or help somebody recognize that they're being used as a political tool or a pawn in somebody's political game. Um, in the context of the classic terrorism, that means by identifying or highlighting the strategy that's being used and how they might be influenced by it. So, I would argue that the inoculation strategy that I've I've uh, talked about a bit here and done research on is, is pretty explicitly uh, most useful as a counter radicalization tool. Um, if nothing else, I like inoculation because it comes at the audience and it comes at your targets by saying, "Listen." You're allowed to believe whatever you want to, you can do whatever you want to, Um, but I want you to be aware that there's going to be strategies used in this speech or by these people who are going to try to get you to do something you wouldn't normally do. And research shows that even just by doing that little bit, that people are less likely to engage in the behavior they're warning them against. So for my money, counter radicalization is the more efficient process. Uh, or the more efficient um, strategy. But I do think that de-radicalization has a place as well, because we shouldn't just write off people who um, maybe we've lost
1: to these kinds of ideologies. Absolutely. And it seems like I, I've kind of, we've had this discussion with, with Shannon and, and, and a few others uh, off the show. Um, it, it almost seems like counter de-radicalization and inoculation can be, scaled via tech platforms, whereas de-radicalization is the function of like social work and like therapy and really intensely focused on the individual. Oh,
0: yeah, I think that's that's a very fair assessment, because people's paths out of terrorism and terrorist ideologies, they are as unique as their paths that go into them. So oftentimes effective de-radicalization involves very personalized programs whereby people engage in discussions and, and reflect on what they've done um, I don't know of any like large scale de radicalization initiatives. There are large scale counter radicalization initiatives, though they can be scaled and they have been scaled and they've been shown to be useful at scale. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, um, I, I think your assessment there is absolutely correct in that de radicalization is much more nuanced. It's much more individualized. Which means that counter radicalization, because it can be scaled, we can reach more people um, with fewer resources than we can with de radicalization.
1: And then uh, I'm kind of curious then, like, let's do this hypothetical, right? Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, the big, big social media companies become very good at counter radicalization, right? They're doing inoculation programs, they're, you know, really scaling that opportunity or that methodology how does that work when let's say you have a hundred percent inoculation rate on the social media platforms Mm -hmm. how does that work when an individual can pivot from social media into fox news right so like like a a more theoretical approach would be you you have a hundred percent inoculation in one part of the information environment and and no inoculation in another. How do we sort of conceptualize that and approach that?
0: Well, an effective inoculation campaign, regardless of the size of scale, um, the first step, in doing that, is to do a thorough audience analysis and media analysis, understanding how the media landscape fits together. So if you note that on Fox News, they're talking about topics A, B, and C, and these topics are also resonating in certain spheres online, then it would make sense to inoculate against those ideas because you're capturing both that way. You don't necessarily need to develop different inoculation campaigns for uh, Facebook versus Twitter versus um, versus Fox News, I mean the delivery mechanism, sure, but in terms of the content itself, if the information overlaps, the inoculation messages should hold up because the um, the, the persuasive mechanisms are all the same. But that said, what you just mentioned brings up a good point, and that one thing that we often lose sight of is that radicalization trajectories, especially toward violence they 're a combination of online and offline processes, engagement with online and offline content so when we develop inoculation campaigns or any counter messaging campaigns um, we need to be aware of how the messages that resonate online and the messages that are spread offline, the way they connect, where kind of the inflection points are, where um, the right angles are. So where does what Tucker Carlson says match what's being said on 4chan? And that's where we, we aim the arrow. That's the sort of thing that we inoculate against because it gets us the most bang for our buck and it undermines the message under, at several different platforms.
1: so then when when we begin to run these counter inoculation programs, these inoculation programs, not counter inoculation, um, how do we deal with the issue of audience access? because um when when I started developing questions and ideas for the show, I went through that thread that you have on Twitter, which we'll'll mm-hmm. we'll post a link to, just like it, it's the most benign academic thing right it's just you explaining things and like here's the books I read uh when you get to the bottom of that thread there are just people needling you for partisan reasons right oh yeah yeah it's just like like some of them are just they're they're not like mean like they're not super mean but they're just kind of dumb like yeah I
0: saw the one guys like you obviously have a left leaning uh yeah. bias and I mean so on, Twitter is weird because people just do that and that, that's a that's a cost effectiveness uh, decision not to engage with those people because oftentimes what I'll do and this might be petty on my part I'll often click the person and see what kind of following they have and it's not because I'm trying to get clout or anything but if there's a guy who's needling me who has seven followers I don't care. It's mostly, it's either a bot or somebody who they just made a bunch of alts online. But if it's somebody who argues with me, who has 10,000, I will refute that person because I want the 10,000 followers to see the pushback, you know? Um, so yeah, there are people who just come at you for partisan reasons like that, and there's not much you can do about them. But if we can be strategic about those that we engage with and how we engage with them, I think that it's useful as a, as a complement to, to this kind of engagement.
1: That's kind of blowing my mind because it just seems like there's a separate strategy for audience access, right? Like, like you're just constantly kind of just playing this game and situating yourself within different networks and different audiences to yeah. distribute an inoculation or distribute sort of uh, counter messaging.
0: Yeah. I think that, um, just generally speaking, in terms of counter messaging, there is a, uh, a worldview related to counter messaging that if we just develop the right kind of counter messaging campaign, and use the right words, we'll solve the problem. And unfortunately, I don't think that's that's the, that's what we that's not the way we should look at it. Um, we are never going to be done developing counter messaging uh, campaigns or developing counter messages because the kinds of messages that resonate, the way they resonate, and the speakers or the the sources they're always going to change. So there is never going to be a time where I develop a strategy that's going to work hundred percent of the time in all cases. So, I mean, I know that government types don't like this kind of answer, but it really is going to be just a, a infinite back and forth between us and and them. The good news is that we know more than they do. And when they do something, we're able to counter it or we can undermine it before it comes out. Um, So I would love to see, those that do counter-messaging and the people that study counter-messaging recognize that there is no real end game here other than preventing violence. This kind of, of back and forth, it, its we have to be agile and we have to be adaptive to everything that comes our way. And we're never going to get a strategy that works all the time. Um, kind of sucks because it means that we're never going to solve the problem 100%. But I think recognizing that the problem is always going to be a moving target, it, it helps us better frame
1: the kinds of work that we are doing. I think like, I think that works so much in the intelligence world and the technical world, but like when it comes to law enforcement and it's like, like I, I know guys that I, I've had to talk to and say, like, you're not going to arrest your way out of this problem
0: um, right that's I, actually that's the first quote in my book is you're not going to uh, the one of the quote. there's three quotes that kick off weaponized words and one of those quotes is I think it says we're not going to bomb our way out of this war that's the first thing
1: that I mentioned I, the quote that I use in the book exactly and I just get looks or stares like they kind of just shrug their shoulders so I'm I'm kind of curious like how do you as a professor kind of interact with with the FBI, not the FBI, but any law enforcement agency, like where, where you kind of have to make this argument that you're not going to arrest your way, you're not going to shoot your way out of this problem, you kind of have to spend this combination of inoculation and social work, and to kind of bring people out to prevent people going in and then bring them out if they do go in. So I mean, what is that look like for you, that conversation with law enforcement, with uh, like the FBI, for instance, or, you know, DC police?
0: Yeah. Well, the key is to meet them where they live. And recognize that people who work in the security fields, they've been trained in security, they haven't been trained in psychology, but to tell them that the kinds of strategies that we're putting together will help them to better identify or better do their jobs as security specialists. So, um, for example, like uh, counter radicalization campaigns, whether communicative or otherwise, they're theoretically made to make fewer targets, fewer people to engage in actual violence. So when there are fewer people who are planning to engage in violence or engage in actual violence, the security professionals have fewer targets they need to go for. That makes their job easier. So when talking to these individuals, I I do get the glazed eyes at first. But when I tell them that, well, number one, this will make your job easier. And number two, in no way am I trying to take the gun out of your hands, because there are those who think that I'm trying to uh, you know, take the weapon out of their hands and stop them from having hardline uh, solutions to terrorism. Which I'm absolutely not. Um, they come around. They they see that this isn't meant to be a replacement. It's meant to be a complement. And I do think we talk about counter radicalization and counter-terrorism as being two different things. They are different conceptually, but they should be two parts of the same solution. Um, and when you can when you can make the security professionals know that the counter-radicalization piece assists in the counter-terrorism piece, they come around and they see the value. So I think that's, that's the play when you engage with somebody. Um, I, I was quoted the other day, I think in um, the Associated Press quoted me when I was talking about kind of gun ownership and and radicalization of people in gun forms, and things like that. And they asked me, uh, well, why are a gun manufacturer so successful? I said, well, they create a need for it. And that's the same thing you can do with with security professionals is tell them that you, you need counter-radicalization to make your job even doable. And when you do that, they tend to warm up to it and they tend to appreciate the work that's being done.
1: Interesting. Um, so I think we've been talking for about an hour. So I think we've covered a lot. And uh, the last question, the legendary last question is... <laughs> um, so we've talked about stochastic terrorism and I, I kind of want you to leave us with something to chew on, something to think about, something that the audience can kind of walk away from this episode and, and kind of spurn on for additional research or additional thinking. Sure,
0: um, I think you've touched on a, po- a couple of things during, during our talk about the role of the online space in stochastic terrorism and the amplification and normalization of kind of extreme messages that in the past were restricted to the dark corners of the internet. Um, I think given that I believe that is the biggest conceptual threat to domestic security in the US is the normalization of what used to be extreme points of view. I think we're going to have to really grapple with that, not just uh, conceptually, but empirically moving forward. So research on the, um, the, the psychological responses to the amplification of racist viewpoints. When somebody who's in a public space says something, often the phrase used online is the quiet part out loud. What's the psychological response to that from people who support them? Um, Do people immediately feel good that somebody said the quiet part out loud if they support that speaker? Um, Are there ways to help individuals who use this kind of rhetoric better communicate so they don't espouse this racist stuff? or this 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 far-right type of uh, rhetoric. So anything related to the amplification and the normalization of um, extreme viewpoints, right, left, whatever, um, that, that advocates the use of violence, I think that's going to need to be looked at very, very closely in the coming months and years, because I don't see any evidence of the problem of stochastic terrorism going anywhere. In fact, the people who've engaged in behaviors or the people who've engaged in stochastic terrorism have made these statements have found that they're actually politically useful. So I think this is going to be a problem that's going to grow in the coming years and something that's going to, have to be grappled with. So anybody that wants to look into issues related to amplification, I think that you will be very, very well positioned
1: to do so and you do very well in terms of writing about it. Wise words. Uh, that was Professor Kurt Braddock, uh, author of Weaponized Words, The Strategic Role of Persuasion in Violent Radicalization and Counter Radicalization. Uh, this is the first entry in our series of Ask a Professor. <laughs> uh, I we, we, we spoke for an hour. I don't think we covered everything. So uh, make sure to purchase the book. It is fantastic. Uh, a great entry uh, in anybody's library. Uh, thank you so much for being a guest on the show.
0: Oh, my pleasure. And if anybody has any questions further, feel free to hit me up on Twitter. I'm easy to find. Um, and I'll be happy to continue the conversation later as I start doing research in this space. Awesome. Awesome.